So we have been focusing on the five covenants of the endowment. And one of the points I want to make is they're not unfamiliar to us. Uh, we don't become, a, we don't see them for the first time in the temple, right? Because if you look at what we do in the chapel, isn't this the baptismal covenant I promise to obey? When we repeat that, I mean, what do the priests say every single week? And witness unto thee, O God, the eternal Father, that they are willing to take upon them the name of thy Son, and always remember him, and? So we didn't see that for the first time in the temple. But it's been kicked up a notch because our emphasis is more on an internal attitude than on an outward obedience. So this is, I promise that I will just, I will obey. This is the discipline of obeying. And this is the disposition of obeying. This will define who I am, not something that I do. And then we did that again with sacrifice. Here, I'm sacrificing, I'm letting go of telestial things. Here, I'm sacrificing and letting go of terrestrial things. So we talked about some of the terrestrial things the temple invites us to let go of. Pride being one of them. What color do we all wear? We stand in circles. You know, there's messages implied in the ordinances about you've got to let go of your pride. Um, you, you're going to leave it in the celestial room, terrestrial room. And if you can't let go, you're going to stay in that room with it. And so the sacrifice the temple invites is to let go of terrestrial things. Then we talked about, okay, let's wrap up the package of what I need to do and what I need to let go of into a gospel that I can promise to obey. And so then we again took, took a look at, well, Part of the temple ordinance is not just I will obey the gospel. I will make sure I understand what the gospel is that I'm obeying. I won't make more or less. And so I covenant to obey the law of the gospel. Now, true or false, those are laws of the gospel. Chastity and consecration are laws of the gospel. So could he have ended there? But he didn't. And a thought for some other day, why those two? What's his commentary? What's he trying to say by pulling of all the things to pull out? Why those two? Now, we're going to focus today on chastity. And I just would pray that we, let's not make this awkward. Every time you talk about chastity in the church, it's an awkward conversation, keeping the law of chastity. I don't know why it just by definition needs to be. So let's just throw the awkwardness out. We're all grown ups. We're not going to have the teenage discussion that was awkward in the past. We're going to focus on the temple. So let's talk about the law of chastity. But I want to distinguish chapel chastity and temple chastity. Because true or false, if you were violating the law of chastity, you can't even go into the temple and make this covenant. So what am I covenanting when I go in? I have to have obeyed. That's part of the chapel ordinances. And maybe, what are, the, what are probably the two biggest reasons people don't have temple recommends? 
that could otherwise qualify. Word of wisdom, law of chastity, and tithing. And two of those make the list. Tithing, chastity. So what then is this? What is temple chastity? Now, I get that the Lord's about repeating, but I repeat that covenant every sacrament meeting, don't I? Don't I promise to obey the law of chastity chapel level every sacrament meeting? And if I am violating the law of chastity, what does the bishop tell me? You can't participate in the, in the sacrament. So I get that. What's this? What is temple chastity? And notice that the pattern is these are very outward and these are inward. And so we're going to talk about what's the next level chastity covenant. And the very, I invited Elder Holland, President Holland today. It just, there's no better. This was one of the most inspired moments on earth when President Holland, those deviant students at BYU who needed to be called on repent. He never gave this talk at the University of Utah Institute, just at BYU. Just pointing that out. <laughs> just pointing that out. Um, sorry. But this was one of the most inspired, beautiful talks um, about temple chastity and chapel chastity I've ever heard. So I'm going to go to his, after he talks, you know, he talks about all the statistics and where we are in the world today, and then he's going to say, but the conversation we need to have is why. Why obey the law of chastity? And then we're going to skip number one. He's going to give three reasons to obey the law of chastity, souls, symbols, and sacraments. And we're going to skip souls. Um, you can go back and read it. The idea is if you violate the law of chastity, you're messing with someone's soul. But I want to focus here. So we're going to, I want to get the introduction, and then we're going to go back to... Uh, or then we're going to skip ahead to the second reason which is symbols. Even as they polish the relationship of the sexes, close quote. I do not wish to spend this hour documenting social problems. I certainly do not intend to wring our hands over the dangers that such outside influences may hold for us. Sorry, I gotta get the camera in as front of the TV. such contemporary realities are, I wish to discuss this topic in quite a different way. Discuss it specifically for Latter-day Saints, primarily young, unmarried Latter-day Saints, even those attending Brigham Young University. So I conspicuously set aside the horrors of AIDS and national statistics of illegitimate pregnancy, and I speak rather to a gospel-based view of personal purity. Indeed, I wish to do something even a bit more difficult than listing the do's and don'ts of personal purity. I wish to speak, to the best of my ability, on why we should be clean, on why moral discipline 
is such a significant matter in God's eyes. I know that sounds presumptuous, but a philosopher once said, tell me sufficiently why a thing should be done, and I will do heaven and earth to do it, hoping you will feel the same as he, and with full recognition of my limitations, I wish to try to give at least a partial answer to why be morally clean. I will need first to pose briefly what I see as the doctrinal seriousness of the matter before then offering just three reasons for such seriousness. May I begin with one half of a nine-line poem by Robert Frost. The other half is worth a sermon, but it'll have to wait for another day. Here are the first four lines of Frost's Fire and Ice. Some say the world will end in fire. Some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. A second, less poetic, but more specific opinion is offered by the writer of Proverbs. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? Whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. A wound and dishonor, and dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. In getting then at the doctrinal seriousness, why is this matter of sexual relationship so severe that fire is almost always the metaphor, with passion pictured vividly in flames? What is there in the potentially hurtful heat of this that leaves one soul, or perhaps the whole world, according to Frost, destroyed? If that flame is left unchecked, and those passions unrestrained. What is there in all of this that prompts Alma to warn his son Corianton that sexual transgression is, quote, an abomination in the sight of the Lord, yea, most abominable above all sins, save it be the shedding of innocent blood or the denying the Holy Ghost, close quote. Now setting aside for a moment, sins against the Holy Ghost, that's a special category in itself, it is LDS doctrine that sexual transgression is second only to murder in the Lord's list of life's most serious sins. By assigning such rank to a physical appetite so conspicuously evident in all of us, what is God trying to tell us about his place in his plan for all men and women in mortality? I submit to you he is doing precisely that, commenting about the very plan of life itself. Clearly, God's greatest concerns regarding mortality are how one gets into this world and how one gets out of it. These are the two most important issues in our very personal and carefully supervised progress. These are the two issues which He, as our Creator and Father and Guide, wishes most to reserve to himself. These are the two matters which he has repeatedly told us he wants us never to touch illegally, illicitly, unfaithfully, without sanction. 
Now, as for the taking of life, we're generally quite responsible. Most people, it seems to me, readily sense the sanctity of life, and as a rule, do not run up to friends, put a loaded revolver to their heads, and cavalierly pull the trigger. Furthermore, when there's a click of a hammer instead of an explosion of lead, and a possible tragedy seems to have been averted, no one in such a circumstance would be so stupid as to sigh and say, oh good, I didn't go all the way. No, all the way or not, the insanity of such action with fatal powder and steel is obvious on the face of it. Such a person running about this campus with an arsenal of loaded handguns or military weaponry aimed at fellow students would be apprehended, prosecuted, and institutionalized if, in fact, such a lunatic would not himself have been killed in all the pandemonium. After such a fictitious moment on this campus, and you're too young to remember my college years when the sniper wasn't fictitious, killing 12 of his fellow students at the University of Texas. Nevertheless, on this campus, in our fictitious moment, we would undoubtedly sit in our dorms and classrooms with terror on our minds for many months to come, wondering how such a thing could possibly happen, especially at BYU. No, fortunately, in the case of how life is taken, I think we seem to be quite responsible. The seriousness of that does not often have to be spelled out, and not many sermons need to be devoted to it. But in the significance and sanctity of giving life, some of us are not responsible at all. And in the larger world swirling around us, we find near criminal irresponsibility. What would, in the case of taking life, bring absolute horror and demand grim justice, in the case of giving life, brings dirty jokes and four-letter lyrics, and crass carnality on the silver screen, home-owned or downtown, is such a personal act of turpitude so wrong? That question has always been asked, particularly by the guilty. A proverb comes to mind. Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eateth and wipeth her mouth and saith, I have done no wickedness. No murder here, maybe not, but sexual transgression, he that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. Sounds nearly fatal to me. So much then for the doctrinal seriousness. Now with the desire to prevent such painful moments, to avoid what Alma called the inexpressible horror of standing in the presence of God unworthily, and to permit the intimacy, it is your right and your privilege and your delight to enjoy in marriage, and that it not be tainted by such crushing remorse and guilt. I wish to give those three reasons I mentioned earlier as to why I believe this is an issue of such magnitude and consequence. Okay, we're going to skip number one. We're going to go right to number two. simply must understand that revealed, restored, Latter-day Saint doctrine of key reason for personal purity, our souls are involved and at stake. Now, number two. Second. 
May I suggest that human intimacy, that sacred physical union, ordained of God for a married couple, deals with a symbol that demands special sanctity. Now, such an act of love between a man and a woman is or certainly was ordained to be a symbol of their total union, union of their hearts, their hopes, their lives, their love, their family, their future, their everything. It's a symbol that we try to suggest in the temple with a word like seal. Prophet Joseph Smith once said we perhaps ought to render such a sacred bond as, as welding, that those united in matrimony and eternal families are welded together, inseparable, if you will, to withstand the temptations of the adversary and the afflictions of mortality. But such a total, virtually unbreakable union, such an unyielding commitment between a man and a woman, can only come with the proximity and the permanence afforded in a marriage covenant. With the union of all they possess, their very hearts and minds, their days and all their dreams. They work together, they cry together, they enjoy Brahms and Beethoven and breakfast together, they sacrifice and save and live together for all the abundance that such a totally intimate life provides such a couple. And the external symbol of that union, the physical manifestation of what is a far deeper spiritual and metaphysical bonding, is the physical blending of two bodies. Indeed, a most beautiful and gratifying expression of that larger, more complete union of eternal purpose and promise. Now, as delicate as it is to mention in such a setting, I nevertheless trust your maturity to understand that physiologically we are created as men and women to fit together in such a union. In this ultimate expression, from one man to one woman, they are as nearly and as literally one as two separate physical bodies can ever be. It is in that act of ultimate physical intimacy we most nearly fulfill the commandment of the Lord given to Adam and Eve, living symbols for all married couples, when he invited them to cleave unto one another only and thus become one flesh. Now, obviously, such a commandment to these two, the first husband and wife of the human family, has unlimited social and cultural and religious implications, as well as the physical. But that is exactly my point. As all couples come to that moment of bonding in mortality, it is to be just such a complete union. That commandment cannot be fulfilled, and that symbolism of one flesh cannot be preserved. If we hastily and guiltily and surreptitiously share intimacy in a darkened corner of a darkened hour, and then just as hastily and guiltily and surreptitiously retreat to our separate worlds, not to eat or live or cry or laugh together, not to do the laundry and the dishes and the homework, not to manage a budget and pay the bills and tend the children and plan for the future. No, we cannot do that until we're truly one. United, bound, linked, tied, welded, sealed, married. Can you see then the moral schizophrenia that comes from pretending we are one? 
sharing the physical symbols and physical intimacy of our union, but then fleeing, retreating, severing all other such aspects and symbols of what was meant to be a total obligation, only to unite again furtively some other night, or worse yet, furtively, and you can tell how cynically I use that word, unite with some other partner who is no more bound to us, no more one with us than the last was or the one that will come next week or next month or next year or any time before the binding commitments of marriage. You must wait. You must wait until you can give everything. And you cannot give everything until you are at least legally and for Latter-day Saint purposes eternally pronounced as one. To give illicitly that which is not yours to give, remember you are not your own, and to give only part of that which cannot be followed with the gift of your whole heart and your whole life and your whole self is its own form of emotional Russian roulette. If you persist in sharing part without the whole, in pursuing satisfaction devoid of symbolism, in giving parts and pieces and inflamed fragments only, you run the terrible risk of such spiritual psychic damage that you may undermine both your physical intimacy and your wholehearted devotion to a truer later love. You may come to that moment of real love or total union, only discover to your horror that what you should have saved has been spent. And mark my words, only God's grace can recover the piecemeal dissipation of your virtue. A good Latter-day Saint friend has written to this issue Fragmentation enables its users to counterfeit intimacy. If we relate to each other in fragments, at best we miss full relationships. At worst, we manipulate and exploit others for our gratification. Sexual fragmentation can be particularly harmful because it gives powerful physiological rewards, which, though illusory, can temporarily persuade us to overlook the serious deficits in the overall relationship. People may marry for physical gratification and then discover that the illusion of union collapses under the weight of intellectual, social, and spiritual incompatibility. Sexual fragmentation, to continue the quote, is particularly harmful because it is particularly deceptive. The intense human intimacy that should be enjoyed in and symbolized by sexual union is counterfeited by sexual episodes which suggests but cannot deliver acceptance, understanding, and love. Such encounters mistake the end for the means, as lonely, desperate people seek a common denominator which will permit the easiest, quickest gratification. <laughs> he doesn't hold back, does he? Okay, thoughts. Do you see a higher, holier covenant being emphasized here? This one is hold off on the act until the covenant is in place. What then is this covenant? What is the difference? What would you now tell me is the difference between chapel chastity and temple chastity? Thoughts? Um, I think it's, I'm not sure how to phrase this precisely, but it's taking it in the affirmative, so it's not just saying don't do this, but it's 
become one with your spouse and hopefully be able to have children and multiply and replenish and fulfill the law of obedience. And yeah, it's taking it back in the way that God intended it instead of the perversion that that's as beautiful as I could possibly explain it. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Right? This can very much be seen as the don't. And this is very much the do. So I promised to be faithful to a future wife. This promise now says what? You give her everything you are. Create that oneness. Be one. God is the example of that. Be one. No, it, a husband and wife are never more one physically than in that act. But now the temple covenant is to let every other aspect of my life match that oneness. Now let's put the pieces of the temple together. Let's go back to the creation. Part of this covenant is the creation. We watched Adam and Eve in creation. Now where does God place Eve compared to Adam? If he had taken Eve from Adam's foot, if that was the symbolism, if he had taken a foot bone, Tell me, tell me symbolically, where would he be saying a wife belongs? Now, are there men who symbolically put their wife below them? Have even the best of couples, have even the best of men on occasion put their wife below them? The covenant of the temple is to put her where God put her. Now, what if... Heavenly Father had taken Eve from his skull. Where would that have placed the wife? And are there women who place themselves above their husband? Are there women who demean and make jokes about and belittle their husband and put their husbands below them? God did not take Eve from his sternum to go in front, nor from his back to go behind. If you remember the older endowment that was filmed, how do Adam and Eve leave the garden? Does Adam lead her out? No. They go side by side. And so, where did God place Eve? At my side. This covenant is more than just don't commit the, don't violate the law of chastity. This covenant is keep each other at your sides in everything, finances, raising the children, in every aspect. If I ever put my wife anywhere but my side, tell me what I've done. I have violated the law of chastity. The temple law of union and oneness. Okay, why else my rib? I love that symbolism. Why else my rib? Why else is my spouse symbolized by my rib? Next to your heart. 
Okay, so nothing should be nearer to my heart than my spouse. Did we do thou shalt love thy wife? Let me show you an interesting play on words. I'll bring it up on the TV so we can see it together. Do you remember in the law, remember when Jesus was asked, what is the great commandment in the law? And he narrowed it down to two. What were the two commandments he gave? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. At what level? At what level do I love God? With all my heart. That's how much I love God. How much do I love my neighbor? As myself. Now that's a pretty high level of love. If I thought of my neighbor as often as I thought about myself, I'd be a great neighbor. But notice neighbor isn't at the level that God is at. God, all my heart. Neighbor, like myself. Now, in our day, the Lord has given a new law. We're going to turn to section 42 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And I'm going to pause at the chapter heading because I want you to see what does Joseph Smith call section 42? The law of the church. And there's a lot of thou shalts, and we won't spend time here, but I love to number the thou shalts. Let me focus on this one. Notice he repeats a lot of the old ones. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie. What would you expect to follow that process? Don't kill, don't steal, don't lie. Don't commit adultery, right? But notice astute observation. It's not negative. It's positive. Instead of thou shalt not commit adultery, what's the commandment? Thou shalt love thy wife. Now what does he do? He takes one neighbor and kicks them up to the level of love reserved for God. Do you see the new commandment? Thou shalt love thy spouse with all thy heart. There's only two people I am commanded to love with all my heart. Who are they? God and spouse. That's temple chastity. Love her more than anything else. Okay, why else my rib? Okay, there's a level of under my wing. Take care of each other. Protect each other. Keep each other safe. I also want to point out the symbolism of the rib cage. Tell me the purpose of my ribs. It's, it is to protect my internal organs. So looking at that as a symbol. No one loves Jennifer Dunford more than I do. No one on this planet. Not even her parents, not her children. No one loves her more than I do. And no one can hurt her more than I can. I could hurt her more than any person on this planet. Do you agree? What is the covenant of marriage? I am to be the protector of her heart. God will hold me accountable. 
if I take the trust she has placed in me and use it to cause her pain. Have you ever broken a rib? Very painful and hard to heal. Can you put a cast around it? You can't. Do you see the symbolism? Do you see the elevated law of chastity? Let me do one more. We did endowment. Let's go into the ceiling room. Let's combine endowment and ceiling room. And to do this, I've got to read some scripture. Otherwise, you'll look at me with really strange looks, and I don't want the strange looks. So we're going to read some scriptures. Okay? I'm going to open up the Old Testament. We'll read it together. Sec- uh, Old Testament, Isaiah, verse 20, or sec- chapter 22. Most scholars skip over this. They don't see the significance. You are going to see the significance. The story, so there's this code. We're going to speak in code because we can't speak openly. But the the symbolism, you're going to see beyond it. The story is that King Hezekiah has a servant that's, that's kind of the secretary of state, the guy in charge of letting people in to see the king. His name is Shebna, and he's being fired. He's been a horrible servant. He lets the wrong people in to see the king. If you bribe him enough, you can see the king. Shebna's being fired, and Isaiah is going to send, is sent to fire him. And it looks like Hezekiah doesn't know. So they're going to hire a new. This is the king's new personal assistant. His na- name is Eliakim. Eliakim is going to hold the key of David. Now we're not talking about Eliakim, right? Do you see the symbolism? Eliakim is the one who gets to decide who gets to see the king. Eliakim can open the door and let you in to see the king. Now, why should Hezekiah grant that much power to Eliakim? I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit my government into thy government into his hands. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of... Do you see the code talk here? We're not really talking about Eliakim, are we? We're talking about Jesus. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, and he shall open and none shall shut. Now, Hezekiah, you can trust him. You can trust Eliakim. I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. Ring a bell? Eliakim is a nail in a sure place. You can trust him. You can hang all your hopes on him. They will not fall. Now, the reference here is clearly to the Savior's crucifixion, right? So allow me to quote Elder Holland. Let me just quote Elder Holland. Sorry, I meant to have this all ready to go. Elder Holland's recent book, Witnesses for His Name. Uh, I think I'm sorted by...
Okay. Elder Holland. Let's read this paragraph. I can't zoom in. Sorry. Which paragraph is it? EJ? When the Roman soldiers drove their four and one half inch crucifixion spikes into their victim's flesh, they did so first in the open palm. But because the weight of the body might tear that flesh and not sustain the burden to be carried, they also drove nails into the wrist down to the nexus of bones and sinews that would not tear no matter what Okay, pause. So if you wanted to crucify me and cause me pain, where would you nail me to the cross? If you wanted to cause me pain, you, you, you pierce my palm. That would hurt the most, right? But what if I hung by a nail through my palm? It, I'd rip right In two minutes, I'd rip right off. So this one isn't going to hold the weight of my body, will it? So the nail through his wrist would be known as what? Keep going. Thus the nail of the wrist was the nail in a sure place. Once it was removed and the Savior was cut down, the burden of the crucified body, more literally the burden of the atonement, was brought to an end. In terms of our salvation, Christ is the nail in a sure place, never failing, never faltering, ever the most certain and reliable force in eternity. For this we surely hang upon him all the glory of his father. So God was able to put the entire weight on his shoulders, knowing what? He wouldn't tear. Jesus was sure in holding that weight. Now, I do the same thing when I lay upon Jesus. What, what is he asking me to lay upon him? All my hope, all my faith, all my trust. Now, can I, is Jesus worthy of all my hope? He can hold that up, can't he? He is a nail in a sure place. Do you see the sacredness of that symbol? Now, when I make a covenant with Christ... There is an invitation in that to be a nail in the sure place for him. The covenant is both ways. He is a nail in a sure place for me. And what's he asking? Bryce, can I lay my trust on you. And what am I covenanting? I will not fail. I may need to repent and you may need to help me, but in the end, I want to be a nail in a sure place. I want to hold your heart, your trust, your hope on me. Now, there's only one other person I hold like that. There is only one other person. Jesus, the Father will combine them. And? And whom? Your spouse. What is this? 
What is that covenant? I promised to be for Jennifer Dunford a nail in a sure place. That's the covenant. You marry someone who can hold that weight. You be someone who can hold that weight. That's the right person. And the covenant of chastity is more than just don't violate the physical act. The covenant of chastity is can she at every moment put her trust on my shoulders to keep her heart safe? I promise you can. Now make a few mistakes and we'll repent and that's why we have faith and repentance. And, but that's the covenant. Do you see it? Do you see the temple law of chastity? Now here's a fascinating thought. Does anyone have an eternal companion when they first make that covenant? No. Which came first, my sealing to my wife or my making that covenant? That's fascinating to me. When does God expect me to start obeying this law of chastity? Long before there's a person with whom I covenant to obey. So my invitation to you, especially if you haven't found your eternal companion, is begin now to obey that level of that law. Love them with all your heart, even in their absence. What would you do today if you knew their hopes were on your shoulders? Be a nail in a sure place. Be worthy of that trust. When you make a mistake, repent quickly. And get worthy of that covenant. Be the symbol in every aspect. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.